My name is Maya Deary. This episode is part of a series called The Waves to Wisdom Interviews. The project is a simple one. I seek out people I admire, surfers with what look to me to be ocean-centered wisdom practices. I ask them if they'd be willing to share a surf session or two, and then, after we've ridden some waves together, talk to me about their oceanic habits, about surfing, work, meaning, anything that comes up. I think that increasingly, as more and more women take to the water, we are demanding that we are looked at differently than we have been in the past. That we are athletes, that we are courageous and confident, and that that carries over into our everyday life. When I leave the water, I don't leave those things on the beach. I take them with me every day. And it has given me strength in my everyday life that I don't think I had before I surfed. And that's a profound thing, to be able to just be your, your own person, to just be you and be okay with it. My conversation with photographer, filmmaker, and writer Elizabeth Pepin Silva took place over two crystal clear California days. We spent time with her friends and family in her hometown of Ojai and had a chance to explore a couple of the nearby surf breaks. Elizabeth's work as a photographer and filmmaker has heavily impacted my view of surfing and more importantly, how I see my own place in that world. No surprise at all after seeing her films, her ability to articulate the story of her life's work and the way it's been fueled by what we generally think of as play was remarkable. I hope you enjoy her wise words. If you are comfortable with it, would you tell us your name, your age, and how long you've been surfing? I am Elizabeth Pepin Silva, and I am almost 52. I'll be 52 July 30th and I've been surfing for 31 years. So you are a photographer and filmmaker. And writer. And yeah. writer. Um, can you talk a little bit about your work and the focus of it? Um, most of my work has been focused on um, ocean and water related things. Um, all of my personal work is always ocean related and oftentimes um, ocean related and women. And I'm really interested in that intersection between humans and nature and how that plays out in people's lives and also the impact that we have on nature, but also the way that nature impacts us. And, and definitely that's the case in, in oceans and coastlines around the world. And you are a surfer, currently active. Yeah, I started surfing in... Um, 1980, I thought it was 86, but then when I, actually this year I finally, because I thought it was like, oh, it's my 30th anniversary, I gotta like figure this out. And then I realized that actually I had started surfing in the fall of 1985, and um, when my friend moved into this house in Marin, I had wanted to surf before that, but I had no, I didn't have any money, so I couldn't go buy a board. There wasn't places anywhere to rent boards at that time. I didn't know anyone that surfed. Um, so it was something I wanted to do, but had no idea how to go about doing it. And so when my friend moved into this house in Marin and 
the guy that had lived there before had left a bunch of stuff in the storage space in the back of the house. There was a board. And she's like, oh, you always wanted to do this here, have it. And there was a pool and I put it in the pool and I'm paddling around, I'm like, this is so cool. And then as I was driving home, it was sticking out. I had this little Toyota Corolla, 70s Toyota Corolla, and it was sticking out the side because I didn't have a rack. Um, it, I was at a stoplight in the Castro and this hippie walks up to my car because it was open because the board was down. He's like, hey, man, I want to I wanna go to the dead at the Oakland uh, Auditorium or Coliseum or something. Do you want to buy my wetsuit? And he had this bag. And I was like, okay. So I pulled over and he was, it was the same size as me. I couldn't believe it. Wow. It was like it was meant to be. It was so wild. And what that's a how, story. That's how I figured out when I started surfing because I looked up when the dead played in Oakland and they didn't play that, do that in the spring of 86. It was in the fall of 85. So that's how I figured out when I started. You know exactly. Yeah, because <laughs> yes. of that deadhead guy. <laughs> so, so he gave me a bag, a wetsuit, a little vest, and some trashed booties, which didn't fit. And so that weekend, I was just like, okay, here we go. What an incredible San Francisco tale. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, so can you, uh, let me just give a little bit of background. I found your work because I have been incorporating surfing into a couple of the academic classes that I teach at the small college. And a woman academic named Krista Comer wrote a book called Surfer Girls in the New World Order in which you and your photographs are featured. I and, and many of my students were deeply inspired by your focus on women uh, and your recent film, La Maestra. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that film and how that came about? Well, La Maestra is my second surf film. I did a film before that with Sally Lundberg called One Winter's Story, which is about the first woman to surf Mavericks. And then did some water-related fil educational films for the state of California. Um, and I wanted to make another surf film, but Sally and I decided not to work together anymore because she lives in Hawaii and it was just too complicated. And um, I just wasn't finding any, anyone that was really, whose story was really grabbing me. I'm not interested in most professional women surfers I, because to me it's obvious why they surf. That's their job and they get paid to do it. Um, and I just wasn't finding a story that resonated with me. I really wanted to do a story about a, a woman in Mexico, but because my Spanish is poor, um, there was barriers to that, and I felt it was extremely important to tell a story um, in the person's own language. And so it took a while. Um, one Word Story came out in 2000. Six October 2006, and Paul Ferraris, who is a friend of mine, a surf photographer from San Francisco, called me in the end of 2013 telling me that he got this grant for um, teachers, art, art and media teachers, and he's a, a media teacher at a low-income high school in San Francisco. The grant allows that art or film teacher to hire a mentor do a small project that will teach the teacher how a new skill that they can then pass on to their students. 
I worked at PBS for 14 years as a producer, and so Paul wanted to learn how to make a PBS-style documentary and then in turn teach his students. Um, he's half Mexican-American and his mother's from Baja, and so Paul speaks pretty solid Spanish. And he loves going to Baja. My husband and I also love going down to Baja, surf and camp. And he wanted to feature these two ex-professional surfers, gringos from California, who had moved to this very tiny surf community in Southern Baja. And I, know who, I knew who they were, and I was just like, I am not interested at all. That is not a story I want to tell. I am just so tired of watching surf films about white people who go to other people's countries, and they tell the story of that country. And you never get to hear from the locals that actually live there. You rarely get to see locals surfing in these surf movies. It feels really colonial to me and condescending, and I'm not interested in participating in that at all. And I, But I said, I really want to make a film about a Mexican surfer in Baja. That completely interests me. And you have the skills, dude, and let's do this. And by the way, I have the, this woman that I think would be really cool. In 2012, my husband and I had gone to this little um, fishing, surfing village, and I was shooting photos when this Mexican, young Mexican woman paddled out. And I was immediately like, whoa, who is that? Because that was the first time I'd ever seen a Mexican woman paddle out on a board. And I'm taking pictures and I just use, just beautiful, beautiful surfer. And my friend who lives there, a gringo, um, pulled up, I'm like, who is that woman? She's like, oh, that's Myra, she's the local teacher. She's, she's taught herself to serve, she's good, huh? I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Myra gets out while Karen was still on the shore and I was introduced, hi, hi, I just got some photos of you, oh, cool, great. That. that was our entire like one minute interaction. <laughs> so I told Paul about her and sent him the pictures. He's like, oh my God, of course. This of course. definitely is so cool. We got to do this. So Karen went and talked to Myra. Myra said she was open to it. So we were emailing back and forth, but she never really, besides that one minute, didn't meet us until the day we arrived eight months later and said, hi, we're the film crew. <laughs> we're here to film you. And they were just amazing. Her, she lives with her mom and dad, and they completely opened their lives and their house up to us. And we're, com we're game to do whatever we wanted them to do. And we like, we don't want you to do anything that you wouldn't already be doing. Can we just, we want to just film your life from the time you wake up until the time you, you go to bed. They're like, okay, come back tomorrow. I get up at this time, go for it. Such an act of uh, trust on their part and must feel like a big responsibility. It does. It's a huge responsibility and one that I, I try and respect. I mean, you are telling someone's story and they are giving you this gift of their story. And I, in my films, I like to let my subjects tell that story and sometimes and I try not to have an agenda. And of course, there's no such thing as a, as a filmmaker that doesn't have an agenda. I mean, you put your stamp on it by your editing decisions, by the, your questions to the person, by the things that you film in that community. Of course, you're putting your mark on it. 
but I try really hard to just let the film be told as the person wants to tell it. That's why I'm not a big fan of narration. Um, and, and you know, and sometimes, like in the case of Myra, who's kind of quiet and, um, you know, it can make for us a little bit of a slower film, but that doesn't mean that its impact um, is any less valuable than some big splashy film with a character that's very um, excitable and, and boisterous. I've seen the film and shown it to students, uh, and it's beautiful. It's just, it's eloquent, and uh, it, it's really quite succinct. I didn't find it slow in the least. And her surfing, even if there were no words, her surfing is just remarkable. And uh, the fact that she is, uh, my understanding from books is that it's actually rare for young Mexican women yes. to surf, and that that is changing, but gradually and only in some places. Yes. So for this to unfold in this very rural place is notable. Yeah, and she got a, 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 quite a bit of for it at first. I mean, people just like, that's for gringo women, not for Mexican women, and why are you doing this, and you're wasting your time. And most women her age were getting married and having children, and, you know, in her little town, she's a rare woman that is has a college degree and a life of her own and interests of her own and no husband or kids at that time um, that she had to worry about. And, and in fact, other people in the community said she was an inspiration, especially to young girls, of, in opening up the possibilities. They've realized through their teacher, La Maestra, um, that there was a world beyond that tiny fishing village that they weren't just restricted to being a mom and a wife. And what else could there be? And there's definitely, last time when we went back down there to show the film a year later, after it was finished, um, I couldn't believe how many young girls were in the water. Oh my goodness. It was goodness. cool. Wow. Really so cool. you were there at that moment and you saw that influence beginning to unfold. Totally. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. What a gift. Yeah, it was really neat. And it was really neat to watch the young boys and how, you know, there wasn't any separation. They were surfing together, the boys who were helping some of the girls that weren't as competent as some of the other girls. And it, to me, seemed like a really healthy um, relationship between the sexes. Hmm. Wow. Such a, such a great story, uh, and a great story well told. We're, we're, I think we're all lucky you were down there to get it. Oh, thank you, yeah. <laughs> um, the Waves to Wisdom Project is based on my working theory that there are some surfers uh, and ocean-centered people whose regular contact with the ocean uh, inspires and guides them and helps them do incredible and positive things in the world. Uh, and, and you seem to me like an embodiment of that oh, uh, proposition. Would you think that is an accurate characterization? Is that an accurate characterization? Yeah, totally. I mean, ever since I can remember, I've been going to the beach and to the ocean, and I think that it is a place that grounds me, that allows me, when I go into the ocean, to um, clear my mind and finds my center and my balance um, in my life. Um, I think that it allows me to expand my creative 
side of me. Um, often when I'm stuck in my work, I go there and let my mind just go. And I come out with ideas that I then come back to my house and execute. Um, my, I come from a long line of anxious women. <laughs> my mom has um, pretty bad mental health issues. I think it is a way for me to not go, you know, not, not follow in the footsteps of the other women in my family. Um, you know, it, it's definitely better than Prozac, that's for sure. <laughs> we share that history in common. <laughs> yeah, I have a history of anxiety uh, in my family as well, and I'm a completely fear-driven person. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting when I say that to people sometimes, they, they find it bemusing that I chose surfing because it sounds like such a scary thing. And, and in fact, it can be. Right. Um, but, uh, but it does help. Can you talk a little bit more about why you think it helps or how it helps? You know, it's been proven over and over in studies that um, exercise helps people with mental health issues. And I don't suffer from that, thank God, but I do think that if I don't go surfing, I definitely feel like I'm more anxious. Um, I get grouchier. Um, I find it harder to be creative. Um, so, you know, if I hadn't found surfing when I did in late 85, I mean, I definitely was on a somewhat self-destructive path and surfing, I think, steered me away from, you know, getting more into the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. I was really into the music scene. I was the day manager at the Fillmore Auditorium, you know, so I was staying up late and partying a lot. And you, although there's many, many surfers that have been hardcore drug addicts. Absolutely. Um, I found it challenging to be that kind of surfer. I. I needed to go to bed. I needed to not drink and not do drugs if I wanted to surf. And I was so taken with surfing from the very first time that I stood up that I wanted it. I wanted it badly. And so that whole partying side fell away because I wanted to surf so much. And it led me to be much more healthy, to take care of myself a lot more, which was cool. So I think that also being in the ocean and especially surfing if you're if your anxiety filled with anxiety or anger it is really hard to surf i mean it, it comes through in your body you're stiff you're going to fall a lot um, you're going to get frustrated and so again you kind of have to like let that go if you're going to be a decent surfer the way you connect with nature and the ocean and that dance between you and the water gives you that release and that pleasure, no matter if it's two feet or 50 feet. Your profession is that you're a filmmaker, photographer, and writer, mm -hmm. and you focus on water and surfing. That sounds like a lot of people's dream job. Can you talk a little bit about how you got to where you are? How you arrived here? Well, it's a dream job if you don't like making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, broke, but catch. I'm happy. Yes. <laughs> Thank God for my husband. <laughs> um, yeah, it is a challenging way to make a living as far as supporting oneself. But it is incredibly rewarding. And 
because of what I have, the way I've chosen to express myself in my photos and my filmmaking, um, you know, I didn't choose a traditional surf photographer, filmmaker path. So what is a traditional So a traditional path? surf photographer and filmmaker would be photographing mainly male, white male professional surfers and getting those photographs into magazines. Um, the front and back covers are magazines or the two-page spread or where the money shots are. And, um, you know, always being on the lookout for the next big surfer because you want to um, set up your relationship with that surfer early on and as their careers build, they will carry you as a photographer and filmmaker along with them and then their sponsors will pay you to go on these trips to go film and photograph them and you'll get paid again by the surf magazines for covering them. Um, but that whole scene does not interest me at all in the least. And I did photograph some professional women servers, but even then I wasn't all that excited. And so my path was, I came at it, first of all, not because I wanted to make surf photography or surf filmmaking a career. I was already shooting photos and making films. Um, and I was surfing. And when I first started surfing in the 80s, there, in Northern California, there were very, very few women surfers. But around 1994, I began to see a lot of women get in the water. But the surf magazines and the surf media and surf industry were not reflecting those changes in their editorial and visual content. And the focus continued to be on white male surfers. And the photographs you did see with of women were them blonde-haired, blue-eyed, skinny teenage girls standing on the beach watching men surf. You didn't see them in the water. And I started to get really frustrated, like, hey, there's this whole new group of people getting in the water. Why aren't you addressing their needs? Why aren't you reflecting this change? And I definitely think that's because the makeup of the staff of these, these companies and these surf magazines were all white dudes from Southern California. You know, narrow vision, very narrow vision and very narrow definition of what and who is a surfer. So I brought started bringing my still camera to the beach. And after I would surf, I'd go and photograph the women that I met on the beach. I was influenced by the early surf photographers like Doc Ball, Leroy Granis, and my most favorite, Ron Church, who was um, Jacques Cousteau's photographer as well as being a surf photographer. There's a dream job. Yeah, he was amazing. <laughs> I really, his work, everyone should know about his work. Just beautiful, beautiful shots, black and white, primarily. And so I was shooting black and white. Um, and of course, this is film. This is before digital cameras. And so from there, I moved on to um, shooting. Actually, I shot in the water before I shot with a long lens. So I got a water housing. And then I got a big, started renting big lenses and got a big lens. But I was, I was just doing it. It wasn't like I, I was even sending them into surf magazines because I didn't think they'd be interested. Um, 
And I was just kind of teaching myself. I, met, I saw a few surf photographers when I would go on road trips. I saw them on the beach and would try to talk to them. They were all men. They weren't interested in speaking with me. I finally connected with two surf photographers in Northern California, um, Thomas Campbell and Patrick Tretz, who were amazingly nice and answered all my questions whenever I had them and really helped guide me. And I thank them profusely for that. Um, and I just kind of found my own voice. And then soon after, women's, finally, women, although the mainstream surf magazines were not showing women surfing, women's surf magazines started to appear. Um, Wahini was the first. It was um, created by two women surfers in Southern California. And so then I had a outlet for my work. And I also was, um, I was getting gallery shows that turned into museum shows. Um, I had friends who were pretty famous artists. And so they kind of, uh, Barry McGee and Margaret Kilgowan really helped champion my work. Um, so I actually started making money from it and people were buying them. And it was lovely. It was lovely that people understood what I was trying to do, that I was trying to provide a different way of looking at women surfers than what was being fed to them by um, the surf media. So it was good. I was, I was really, I was thrilled that people understood that beauty can come in all different forms and that we should be celebrating these women surfers as athletes and not as objects that unfortunately still to this day continues to that continues to be perpetuated that these women are being sexualized and um their the focus is on their beauty rather than their surfing ability as i've tried to encourage many young people and this is some men too, but primarily women, to learn to surf, they don't think that they can because they don't look like that. I mean, they, they wouldn't use those words, but fundamentally it's, it's that, that they don't feel like they're, you know, in quotes, athletic enough or they have good enough balance. Uh, but if you dig just a little bit beneath the surface, it's that they know what surfers look like and they know they don't look like that. Right. So I think the work that you're doing and others who are trying to represent surfers of all ethnic backgrounds and all shapes and sizes is so crucial, not just to make a statement, uh, but to communicate to younger people that this is a, this is a form of, of participatory joy and embodied wisdom that's open to every single person. Um, varying abilities, varying physical abilities, uh, you know, all different kinds of people. Uh, speaking of varying physical abilities, can you tell us how you learned to use a darkroom? So I, in high school, my counselor at school in eighth grade, um, her son was blind and she ran this camp called Enchanted Hills Camp for the Blind in Napa um, during the summer months between school sessions. And she told me about it and asked if I'd want to come up and volunteer. So I said, sure. So from eighth grade to 11th grade, each summer I volunteered up there and I was allowed to choose what departments of the camp I would work in. And so I was avid horse fiend, so horses were a natural fit for me. Um, but then I was getting interested in photography. And so I volunteered for the photography department 
which surprises a lot of people that, you know, why would there be a photography department at a camp for blind people? But in fact, most blind people have some uh, sort of vision, whether they can see shadows or light or dark, or sometimes even outlines of people or fuzziness. They, they do, most of them are not completely and totally, you know, only see black. And so I volunteered in the photo department and the uh, college kid who was running the photo department taught me and the um, campers that chose to take that elective photography how to not only shoot, but also develop our own work. So that's how I learned how to work in a dark room. It was great. A great story. So the and and how were the pictures from the blind campers? The blind campers actually took really interesting, cool pictures. I bet. It I was mean, it was amazing to see what they were seeing. Because, you know, as a sighted person, I like, this is what I see. But for someone that has limited um sight like how are what how do they see the world and so this was a window into what they were seeing i thought it was really a really neat experience what uh, it seems as though not only uh, uh, a neat experience but what an influential time for you to have that experience and to understand something fundamental about vision that maybe you couldn't get. I mean, I, I've been a photography teacher, this will be my 16th year, and one of the things that I notice is we are all so heavily influenced by media that m when most photography students go out and take pictures, they're trying to emulate the billions of pictures that they see. And so if you were cut off from those influences, it might in some ways be visually freeing. Yes. Oh, wow. Well, it also opened my eyes as to what is a, phot what is a photograph? you know, and what makes a good photograph versus what, you know, a bad photograph. And of course that's in a way subjective. One of my favorite photographers working and alive today is Sally Mann, who has, you know, in her recent work, just completely embraced these uh, serendipitous quote unquote mistakes and such evocative, powerful, expressive work yeah. comes out of it. I love her work. I think it's it's wonderful. And I do the same in my work as, I mean, I'm not equating myself with Sally Mann and believe me in any way, <laughs> shape or form. But what I, what I mean by that is that I used to, in my early photo photography, chuck out all the ones that I didn't, I thought weren't perfect. And, you know, luckily I was shooting on film, so the negatives are still there. And I, after a few years, started going back and looking again and realizing that I actually had some pretty beautiful photographs. They, if I just looked at them differently. And in fact, some of my bestsellers were ones that I initially didn't print. Um, oh, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So your vision about your own work, even work that you had already done, has evolved over time. Completely. Mm. Uh, the, so you are not formally trained as a photographer? No, I've never taken, I, I've tried a couple times to take classes. I lasted like two or three classes and then I just, I just got bored. I mean, so our alarm just went off. Uh, yesterday we were just so fortunate to uh, go to Rincon yes. on a day with a beautiful, what would you call that, knee to maybe waist at the most? Yeah, knee to waist, although the outside sets, people were getting like chest high. 
waves. It, it was. was. Oh, and you know, I'm from North Carolina where everything is a beach break, and those long point break waves are just magical. It is going to take a force of will to get me on that plane <laughs> headed back to beach breaks. Um, but we will, um, we're going to go surfing now because the conditions are probably going to be good soon. Yeah, we'll, the tide's coming up, so good. it's we'll, time to get our butts out there. Let's do it, and we'll pick this up afterwards. Okay, Okay, cool. thank you. Okay, so we're back from our surf at Rincon. Yes. Another really fun longboard day. It was a, quite lovely. With a relatively uh, friendly crowd and not too many of us. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Uh, lots of women out today. Yes, lots of young women. I loved the mom with her two sons teaching them how to surf. That was really cool. So uh, one thing that, that I've noticed in the last couple of days I've been lucky enough to spend kind of hanging around and seeing how you do your work is how generous you are with other other artists and documentarians. Um, can you talk just briefly about the documentary that I saw the other night that you put on for some friends? So that was a film called The Great Highway and it was done by two friends of mine from San Francisco, Mark Gunson and Krista Howell. And I think that was Krista's first time as a filmmaker. So when I learned to make documentaries, I had some mentors who literally taught me everything. Um, Peter Stein and excuse me, Peter Stein and Joan Saffa, um, both Peabody Award-winning filmmakers um, at PBS, who took me under their wing and taught me everything they know, and I was very grateful for that. I didn't go to film school; I have a degree in journalism. In magazine writing. So while many of those skills are transferable to documentary filmmaking, there still is the actual nuts and bolts. How do you make a film? How do you put it together? And there's so many more moving parts than when you're writing a story. You have the visuals, you have the music, uh, the sound mix, um, sound sweetening, which is like, you know, birds chirping and adding the ocean sounds or whatever you need. Um, and so they taught me that for free. So with that generous spirit in mind, I've always felt that I need to do the same thing and help other filmmakers with the knowledge that I've gathered over the years. Um, and it, to me also, it's a, it's a selfish thing, I guess, because not only does it bring me great joy to help other people see the help bring their creative endeavors to fruition, but selfish in the way that I want more voices telling stories in the surf world. And I'm not going to be able to do everything myself, so I want to help other people to be able to gather these important stories before they're lost. Because once these people pass and their, their stories go with them and we're screwed. So, you know, that's, that's uh, my way of giving back to people. So you are surfing regularly, right? Mm -hmm. I surf every, at least once a week, and I try to surf uh, three to five times a week. Can you say anything more about ways that you think surfing or ocean activities might be different from other kinds of sports? Waves are this, incredible force of nature unto themselves and no wave 
is the same as the next, even when there's a swell and it's coming from a particular direction and you're, you're at a point break, so it's breaking in the exact same spot every time. Nonetheless, each wave is unique and unto itself. And you are trying to become one with that movement um, and connect with nature in that way that it's a, I think it's pretty unique. It's profound for me, that's for sure. I think that surfing is a pretty difficult thing to explain to anyone that doesn't surf. And even if you talk to a surfer right after they've surfed like maybe one of the best waves of their life, or at least the best wave of that day, when they try to describe it, it's, it's really impossible. And to even recall the, what has just occurred in your own mind is almost impossible because it's just so happening in the moment and then it's gone and the wave's gone. So you're, you have many creative outlets and endeavors that you've undertaken in your life. You're a musician? Uh, no, I wouldn't call myself a musician. You I like play to play music. I like to play music <laughs> okay. poorly. Um, so you, you play music and you photograph and you make films. Mm -hmm. um, I write books. You write books and you surf waves. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk about um, the ways in which those activities influence one another or feed into one another. For, for example, let me tell you what something that, that I wonder about because I'm not a musically inclined person. And music to me, uh, when you are a musician, when you play music, it looks from the outside very similar to surfing in some ways. It's ephemeral. Uh, if you're playing with other people, there's always this other force that you're in concert with, literally, if it's going well. Um, you, you must have to be powerfully focused for it to go well. Um, and, and yet it's got to be utterly different than, from surfing. Can you talk to me a little bit about, instruct me as somebody who knows how to surf but knows almost nothing about music from a primary participant. Well, so I don't, I don't know that I'm a good enough musician to be able to answer that question. I mean, I don't, I played in one punk rock band when I was 17. And other than that, I just play by myself for the most part. We have these jam sessions in our backyard and I'll be playing along. Um, but definitely, as with surfing and with my playing, if I start thinking about it too much, it doesn't go as well as if I empty my mind and I just let it unfold and let my body and my um, emotion just take over. And that's what I think one of the the plagues of the modern world is that we get so wound up in our own heads. Instead of just relaxing and letting go and letting what needs to happen come to you. And when you're able to do that, when you're surfing, you're definitely surfing a lot better. When you're able to do that, I find in the creative process, you create a lot better. Do you think surfing has made you a happier person? Oh, I'm definitely a happier person because I surf without a doubt. I'm, you know, as I said, I've, I come from a rather troubled family. Um, 
and that continues to have issues to this day. And I wonder what it would be like if I didn't have surfing. And I always come out of the ocean feeling a lot better than I went in. I mean, yesterday we surfed, I was freaking exhausted. I really, to be honest, didn't want to go. I just wanted to be by myself. I just felt like I had people overload and I was just like, just wanted to take a nap and read my book and not talk to anyone for a while. And I was actually very grateful that it's like, we're gonna go. And um, we did. And I actually, you know, we went to a, a place that was small and mellow and I came out of the water feeling a lot better because of it. And so it's funny though, sometimes you gotta fight those tendencies to just not wanna, you know, do anything and sit on your butt. Even though you know <laughs> that once you get in that water, you're gonna come out of it a million times better than you were. I've never regretted going surfing. No. no. Even on the most <laughs> crappiest days, even when there's like 10,000 people in the water, as long as they don't hit me. <laughs> right. I, you know, it's good. It's good, it's good. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add? Anything that you have to say or that you've noticed about having this regular contact with the ocean in your life? about being a surfer? Well, I don't think that for everyone, surfing is gonna be, be the thing, you know? But what I have found, what, what, what part of what my relationship the ocean has taught me and what I have found from surfing, that if you are able to find that one thing, whether it be the connection of the ocean and surfing or hiking mountains or gardening or whatever it is, if you have that one thing that you are able to do that connects you with nature and allows you to be in the moment, I think you're a much happier person for it. In our world that is ever becoming more technologically connected and less connected to the natural world, I think it is ever more important to find that connection to the natural world because I think the world is suffering because of our increasing lack of connection. Um, it, it causes our human relationships suffering and it causes our relationships with the planet to suffer. And I think we are seeing profound impacts because of that. And so I hope that people um, find something that they can do that will bring them that connection. I think it'll make them a more rounded and happier person. You've really focused your career as a surf documentarian on women. Yes. Do you have anything to say to women, not just female surfers, certainly female surfers, but any women of any age that you'd like to pass on from what you've noticed in this career? Well, I would just encourage women to try and have a relationship with the ocean, whether you surf or you simply wait around or you walk on the beach and collect shells or you sit on a bench and stare out to sea. I don't know why it would be different for a woman than a man, why a woman's relationship to the water is different than a man's. But I have, in my 31 years of surfing, watched women who are struggling in one way or another 
develop a relationship with the ocean and their struggles have been minimized, if not wiped away. And I think that there is something very empowering about a woman's connection to a powerful force of nature, such as the ocean. And, you know, it requires determination and strength and will and confidence in oneself that you can be in the ocean and not get hurt and that you also recognize your limits and keep yourself safe and not put yourself in situations that you could get hurt. And so in that way, it allows women to test themselves in a way that maybe other venues don't offer. Determination and strength and confidence are not necessarily attributes that the culture always encourages women to develop. Yeah, but they should. But I think that increasingly, as more and more women take to the water, we are demanding that we are looked at differently than we have been in the past. That we are athletes, that we are courageous and confident, and that that carries over into our everyday life. When I leave the water, I don't leave those things on the beach. I take them with me every day. And it is given me strength in my everyday life that I don't think I had before I surfed. And that's a profound thing, to be able to just be your, your own person, to just be you and be okay with it. And unlike many people, you're a part of a surfing couple. Yeah, it's, it, was, it, was, it brought us together. It um, was how our romance flourished. I actually knew my husband since I was 18. He um, was just kind of part of the music scene that I was in, but we weren't like hanging out friends or anything like that. I just knew who he was. And we reconnected when I was 32, um, and he asked how I was staying fit, and I told him that I had been surfing for a long while, and so he said he wanted to go and learn. And so um, I took him and we never got rid of him. <laughs> um, but it's great. I, I honestly don't see how, for someone like myself, who the ocean and surfing is so much a part of who I am and what I do, I don't see how I could be uh, partnered with somebody who didn't have that same relationship to the ocean because otherwise I'd never see my partner. Um, so it's good. Having that kind of shared passion. Is... Although we like different waves. <laughs> he likes big waves and I like small waves. <laughs> it seems like there's some compromise in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, you know, we, could, we, we find spots that have both. That's good. Well, thank you so much for your generosity. It's, it's not just bestowed upon me, but I'm particularly grateful for it. Elizabeth's story of creativity, perseverance, and success is powerful. But when you learn to translate the beauty and teachings of ocean-centered play into your life, incredible, unanticipated chapters can unfold. One of the things I'm most excited about is using surfing as a means to guide others into creating more meaningful, impactful, and effective versions of their lives. 
For more information about Waves to Wisdom retreats, coaching, sign up for our mailing list, or check out what's new on the blog, visit wavestowisdom.com.